From O'Melveny and Myers, this is The Cramdown with Nancy Mitchell and John Rapisardi. Hello, this is John Rapisardi, and welcome to the third episode of The Cramdown Podcast, hosted by Nancy Mitchell and me. Nancy won't be able to join us today, and in her place, we have Joe Zakowski, uh, my partner, who will co-host uh, our uh, presentation today. Uh, the th- topic of today's presentation is the current situation in Brazil as it relates to the social and economic challenges presented by the global pandemic and the impact it has had on restructurings and distressed workouts in that country. We are fortunate today to be joined by two leading restructuring practitioners in Brazil, Marcos Leite de Castro and Antonio McDowell Leite de Castro. Antonio has been working as a restructuring lawyer in Brazil for the last 16 years, representing many creditors, debtors, investors, and an appointed trustee in judicial recoveries and bankruptcies. Marcos uh, has over 20 years experience in reorganization and solvency matters, including distress M&As, reorganizations, and debt financings. So today, Joe and I would like to explore with Marcos and Antonio not only the impact of the pandemic on restructurings in Brazil, but what has been the experience of Brazil with its bankruptcy law that has been on the books since 2005, how that law has been working, and potential reforms uh, that uh, we may see in the future. It's important to note that Brazil is the world's eighth largest economy and attracts many investors from the U.S. and worldwide. And so we believe that reviewing the current situation today as it relates to the pandemic and its experience with respect to restructurings both uh, before the pandemic and uh, after the pandemic are timely. By way of background, I first met Marcos in 2013 at a Distressed Investors Conference in Rio de Janeiro and became very interested in Brazil's economy uh, at that time, uh, which was facing uh, prosperity and expansion in advance of the 2014 World Cup. It also had already uh, on the books a a bankruptcy law, a new new bankruptcy law that was passed in 2005 that had already been uh, tested by the great economic crisis of 2008-2009. So here we are now in 2020, now facing another uh, great economic crisis, probably far deeper and greater than we experienced 12 years ago. It's worth noting that here in the United States, the pandemic uh, has triggered Uh, a wave of retail filings and uh, filings in the energy sector. And we are now seeing uh, an uptick in COVID cases, which is threatening to slow down uh, the economic recovery in the United States and possibly could trigger additional uh, restructuring filings over the next few months and and, uh, and next year. I think it's worth uh, noting that Brazil is also suffering many of the same issues that the United States has been facing. And it would be good to hear from Marcos and Antonio as to how uh, Brazil has been impacted uh, by the pandemic in terms of its way of life, its economy. Marcos, Antonio? Well, thank, thank you, John. This is Marcos. Uh, thank you so much for the, for the invitation. I mean, we're very happy to, to discuss this, especially with uh, longtime friends uh, as you and, and Joe. As you noted, uh, Brazil has really been... Uh, hardly hit by, by the, the COVID pandemic. Uh, I think in terms of, of deaths per million, I think we're on the top of the list, unfortunately. Uh, I think the, the early response to the crisis was not, was not very good uh, in terms of the, the health uh, uh, 
steps that were being taken to prevent this from, from increasing. Uh, there was some confusion between federal and, and local government uh, governments in that regard. So uh, as a result, I think the, the crisis spread uh, fairly quickly and, and, and the number of, of people infected was, was uh, very high. Uh, the thing about Brazil, I mean, that was particularly difficult, I think, here was that, I mean, we were just uh, really uh, getting below the waterline on, on many companies were just emerging from a very difficult economic situation uh, with a technical recession for three or four uh, quarters already before the, the COVID hit. So uh, many, many companies were already hardly impacted and with liquidity uh, prices at that point. But things were starting to, to move into the right direction. It appeared with a, a government that was more uh, pro-business and really looking to approve uh, the reforms that are required to sort of stabilize the public accounts. Uh, and with that, create a more, uh, a more viable, a more generous, I think, uh, economic environment for, for companies to, to really prosper. But uh, uh, back in the end of, uh, I think it was December, uh, 19, a very important reform on social security, on pensions was passed. And there was a general, a general view, I think, among economists that, well, may, maybe we're now going to the, to the right direction. And this is when, by February, then the, the COVID pandemic really hit and, and, and definitely affected a lot uh, the economy. Uh, Marcos, what, what uh, industries have been hit hardest by the uh, pandemic? Well, I would say at this point, it's sort of spread out uh, throughout the, the all, all industries. I think there are some that actually did well. Uh, and I think this is pretty much the same all over the world. So uh, companies that relied on, on technology went, uh, went well. Uh, consumer uh, products also did well, uh, especially house appliances, uh, because the, the Brazilian government was able to uh, give a, 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 a quite generous, I would say, I mean, uh, uh, spread out help, uh, financial help for, for the, the most vulnerable inhabitants. And, and that sort of also uh, helped to keep the, the, the purchases, I think, in, in consumer for consumers in, at, at a reasonable level. So this industry did not feel all that much. I think uh, construction felt a little bit, at least in the beginning. Services, uh, services certainly was the, the worst of it. Uh, uh, basically, with, with the show, I mean, if you look at restaurants, entertainment, tourism, all of that was really heavily impacted. Has the government taken any measures to provide aid to small businesses? They, they have. I mean, they started uh, providing aid for individuals. Uh, so uh, below what we call poverty uh, uh, line, they pr provided financial aid for small businesses as well, even though, I mean, there was a lot of criticism as to the speed of, 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 of the implementation of, of the measures. But finally, they got to the, to the end to the end user uh, to the small businesses. So that was kind of a help. And, and one of the questions is, I mean, that aid will will be finalized, and this is this is under discussion right now for how long this will continue. But once you stop that, once you, you cut that that line, what will happen? And there's a there's a real concern about the effect of all of that into the Brazilian economy going forward. Sounds like a similar debate we're having here in the United States. How have uh, uh, restructurings and bankruptcy filings uh, uh, managed? Have you seen an increased uptick in, in uh, re judicial reorganization filings and bankruptcy filings? Yes, they have. They're starting to, to peak, even though I would say uh, at this point, the small and medium, medium businesses have been hit harder, I think, uh, at this point. 
usually this kind of business does not have a lot of liquidity, so they, they really don't have reserves to cope with that kind of emergency of a 60-day or 90-day shutdown or close to that. Uh, so these are, are, these are the, the, the businesses that are being hit harder. Uh, medium to large companies, uh, they usually have more uh, reserves for, for this. And also what happened was, I think, I don't know if you had the same in the U.S., but here in Brazil, banks uh, took sort of a collaborative approach uh, in uh, extending uh, maturity dates and sort of waiving uh, technical defaults or at least not acting on them immediately to give some room uh, for the companies to, I mean, catch a breath and, and and really, I mean, people were really looking at what was going to happen with uh, with the pandemic. Where was it going, really? How long would it take? I mean, a lot of questions that, I mean, people just don't know, didn't know the answer at that point. I'm not sure if we already have all the answers now, but at least it seems mm. clear at this sure. point. Sure. Well, I've always been intrigued as to uh, the United States Bankruptcy Code, which was passed in 1978, which introduced this revolutionary concept called debtor in possession, which allowed companies uh, to file for reorganization and the management to stay in possession and operation of the business. And uh, I've followed over the years many countries that have followed, at least in part, uh, the U.S. 1978 Bankruptcy Code and the concept of debtor in possession. And I would say that from my reading and learning Brazilian bankruptcy law from you guys, uh, Brazil is no exception. However, there are important distinctions and differences between the Brazilian uh, restructuring law. And I know you'll correct me in terms of the technical referral to restructuring as opposed to uh, liquidation. And the, the 2004 law, uh, as I, I understand, was meant to be more creditor friendly, uh, ex even though it introduced the concept of, of debtor and possession. Uh, can you guys give us a brief overview as to how that law works and, and some of the uh, important uh, distinctions as you see it between the U.S. and, and Brazilian law? Yeah, um, uh, John, uh, you're right. Um, our uh, law basically encompasses three legal regimes. The, the court restructuring, uh, similar to your Chapter 11. The out-of-court uh, restructuring, prepackage, if, if you will. Uh, and, and bankruptcy, which is uh, uh, basically the liquidation, uh, the end of the, uh, uh, of the company. This law, as compared to uh, decree uh, law number 7661, which was the, the, the previous law that was uh, in force before uh, the enactment of, this, uh, of, of, of the current law, uh, shifted, completing the decision-making power from the court to debtor and creditors that, according to the law, now have to negotiate a restricting plan which shall be presented by the debtor and, if approved, can drag along all claims, even the dissenting and, and absent uh, uh, ones. The court now, instead of, of, of granting a judicial moratorium uh, to the debtor in a, in a one-size-fits-all model, according to certain pre-establish discounts in, in, in terms of payment, only supervises the, the procedure, uh, but as a principle, uh, do not interfere in the merits of the restructuring that is up to the debtors and, and, and uh, to the debtor and the creditors. Uh, differently from the USA law, some, uh, there are only four preset classes of creditors uh, in court restructuring. 
There are uh, labor-related, uh, secured, uh, unsecured, unsecured, and micro uh, labor-related, secured uh, creditors, unsecured, and, and, and micro and small uh, companies, which are companies that uh, have a, a, a revenue, uh, annual revenue below certain, uh, certain threshold. And, and, and in our case, only the debtor, differently from the U.S. law, only the debtor uh, can file a restructuring, a restructuring plan. Uh, on top of that, uh, some uh, uh, categories of claims are not subject to court restructuring. Taxes are not subject to, to court restructuring. Uh, fiduciary liens, uh, banking export prepayment uh, credits um, are not uh, 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 subject to court restructuring and, and, and neither affected by uh, the stay uh, nor the uh, restructuring plan. Uh, I believe there are other uh, uh, points that Marcus could uh, uh, talk about uh, in relation to the differences between uh, one, one law and the other. Sure. Marcus, if you will. Sure, sure. Very, very quickly, I think. Uh, one point that uh, I kind of just mentioned that it's very important is about, I mean, what is not uh, capable of being restructured under a, a, a court reorganization. Uh, that ha what happens in, in most cases is that banks usually take these liens that are not subject to the RJ. Uh, so in the end, you have sort of a parallel negotiation uh, with, with those banks outside uh, the, the, the judiciary recovery. And sometimes that outside uh, the judicial recovery is even higher than, the, than uh, within. And that's also for, that also is the case for taxes, which are not restructurable under an RJ. Uh, other than that, I would mention that, I mean, unlike the U.S., there's no absolute priority rule. Uh, so, I mean, there's, there's no actual requirement that, I mean, shareholders get, uh, get only paid after unsecured creditors. Uh, that's, that's entirely a negotiable, uh, a, a, a commercial issue to be negotiated by debtors and, and, and by the, the creditors and debtor in the, in, the, in the voting and the shaping of the plan. And uh, the other thing that's, uh, I mean, and I think you and I, John, have discussed this over time in different matters, is there's no rule under the, the insolvency proceedings that uh, shareholders can be wiped out by a restructuring plan. So they need to, to agree and there are all the protections granted to shareholders, not their laws, corporate right. laws, outstanding. So but, 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 but Marcos, the, when I heard about that rule that shareholders cannot be wiped out, I said, well, all right, shareholders have leverage, but at the end of the day, don't the creditors have the ultimate leverage? Because if the creditors turn down the plan and they don't like uh, the shareholders staying in place, uh, if the plan is turned down, then it converts into uh, a liquidation automatically? It is true. Uh, that's true. And, and I mean, if you, if you take in practice what happens with uh, most reorganization plans is that, I mean, one, one basic requirement is shareholders cannot be paid before unsecured credits unless in very particular situations where it's they're providing uh, new money or value or something like that it's true uh, but if you if you look at at, at the creditor size there are a lot of complaints especially for non-brazilian parties that that's uh, something that's hindering the progress of the law and, and all of that uh, but you, you're right as a practical you know as a practical point even though it's a different in terms of the law uh, in practice this is, this is the standard uh, shareholders uh, are not paid before then uh, I think more more complicated is just that I mean s some corporate protections for shareholders or some actions that depend on shareholders for the implementation of the reorganization plan. These are not subsumed by by the RJ proceeding. So the requirements still stand, 
So this sometimes may complicate the implementation of the plan. So the plan needs to be very careful uh, negotiated and, and all the implications of the plan need to be examined by, by council and, and, and debtors. Let just me add something to what Marcos just said. Uh, for the majority of the creditors, uh, liquidation is not actu uh, actually an option because uh, liquidation uh, in Brazil, bankruptcy in Brazil, even though our current law has improved because the decree law uh, 7661 was even uh, worse, uh, it's, it's a process of, you know, losing uh, uh, value, deteriorating uh, value, and the recovery rates are very, very low. So for the majority of the creditors, this uh, power of um, rejecting the plan and having uh, the judicial recovery converted into uh, a bankruptcy is not actually an option. True, true. Uh, I think the, the, the last point I would like, just like to, to highlight is just uh, the dip financing. Uh, uh, there's a lot of, uh, of cry about uh, dip financing because it, it, it didn't really pick up. I think we don't have the same protections and the same uh, and the same super priority that is granted. I think in other jurisdictions, I think uh, like like the U.S. Uh, basically, I think there's no there's no rule permitting a court to grant a, a senior loan or senior security to a dip lender, especially on on already encumbered uh, assets. Uh, and also in terms of the roll-up of pre-petition debt of, of lenders or creditors who are willing to put in more money is very limited. It's a very limited option under, under Brazilian law as well. And uh, I mean, a lot of people complain and, and, and many people thought that this would be a sort of a new, a new frontier for, for lender, for, for, for banks and for lending and for private, uh, uh, private equity and, and other funds and other creditors specializing in this. But... This has not really picked up, even though there are some cases in which dip financing did take a, an important role, but it was pretty much all contractual and depending on uh, on how, how debtors would, would look into that. You need to build some consensus in order to put that uh, in order. Marcus Antonio, the, the statutory uh, background is extremely helpful. Can you maybe sort of speak to the two or three lessons that you think U.S. investors in, in Brazil, Brazilian distress debt can take from uh, a few recent large uh, restructurings in Brazil? Yes, I think uh, it would be interesting. Uh, I mean, just to, to maybe we, we can just uh, pick up a couple of, of interesting precedents, I think. And this, this more or less tells the story how the, how the law was applied over time. I think, I mean, one particularly uh, interesting case, I think was really the, really the first one under the new law was the Varig Airline case. I mean, Varig at the time was a, a really a, a flagship, if you will, of Brazil in terms of it was, it was a main airline company and, and very reputed, uh, uh, with great reputation internationally. And uh, it was really, I mean, the a, a really tough test for a new law and particularly an entirely new concept in that law, uh, that that law brought in. Uh, so uh, in the end, I think there, there were a lot of, uh, uh, it was a sophisticated case in that you had uh, less source. Uh, you had a Chapter 15 case in the U.S. and in the end, uh, a plan was approved by creditors. Some assets were were sold, and uh, many of the many of the of, of things under the new law uh, were tested. Like, for instance, uh, labor claims. I mean, uh, all, all the labor claims try not to be subject to the law and do some other other stuff, going to labor courts and and sort of challenging the jurisdiction of the insolvency court. And that was uh, that, that was a very important challenge. I think 
as, a, as, a, as an institute, if you will, as a, the institution of the new law, I think was heavily testing that first case. Uh, then I think there was uh, uh, the Hage case. It was a power uh, generation transmission company uh, or group of companies. So that was the sort of the leading case on substantive consolidation. And we can we can go back to substantive consolidation a, a little further because I know this is a subject that I mean we have discussed over time and this is still evolving. And uh, and the other interest, interesting thing in that case was that. There were competing offers, I think, for uh, for the company, and in the end, uh, creditors ultimately uh, rejected the, the the first offer that was made, and instead of uh, of pushing uh, the company into into liquidation, uh, they asked for an adjournment of the creditors' meeting, and they worked uh, with the with with the competing uh, investor, and uh, and uh, and a better offer was made, and it was ultimately approved. As the plan, so it was it was interesting, and I think it was the first time they really had uh, you really had uh, or it was a, a very paradigmatic uh, issue that at that time when you had uh, creditors and and debtor working uh, and uh, in a competing view on, on on what the best plan would be. I mean, I would also mention uh, OGX and OSX cases. Those were at the time huge cases. That this was back in 2013. Uh, the co combined debt of approximately, at the time, $5 billion was structured under, under the two uh, separate uh, RJ cases. Uh, both companies were controlled by the same controlling shareholders, or were separate companies, uh, publicly listed companies, uh, and with sophisticated creditors, including uh, offshore creditors, uh, bondholders in the case of, of, of OSX and OGX. Uh, and that ended. There are two, I think, interesting features there. One was the first time where non-Brazilian entities were included in the main proceeding here in Brazil because there were foreign subsidiaries or non-Brazilian subsidiaries of OGX. The segregate the, for the first time, I think. I mean, Hedge also had that, but I think uh, the OGX case kind of set a standard for the segregation of bondholder claims. There was a discussion on how could bondholders be represented in, a, in an insolvency case in Brazil? Would the trustee vote for all of them? And I mean, how, how would that uh, be resolved by the court? And the court decided that each bondholder had the right to separate its own claim and vote individually. It was a, an interesting precedent. Uh, and we had a deep financing there and also a massive conversion of claims uh, into, into equity. Uh, I think for the in the OGX case, around $250 million, and that was a, a huge amount as sort of a bridge uh, loan, but as a dip financing for uh, to, keep, to keep the company running. Marcos, if you can only have one class of unsecured claims, uh, how does that complicate uh, your ability as a restructuring lawyer to strike deals with subclasses, if you will, for example, unsecured bondholders, as opposed to trade creditors, uh, if everyone has to be in the same class, does that mandate that they have to be treated similarly or the same? The law is, is silent about that, but but case law says that you can uh, you can create subclasses, subclasses you know, within yeah. the the for instance the unsecured class, but there there needs to be some valid criteria, some equitable criteria to differentiate between uh, these parties, these creditors within a, a certain class. Yeah, you need to justify why you are creating the subclass. Um, there, there must be a uh, one. One particularly uh, uh, for, is, for instance, for, for critical vendors. For instance, if if they are unsecure, 
this is usually allowed that you have sort of a better treatment for for uh, unsecured creditors. But I mean, if you when you, when you count the votes, uh, it's really the same class. Even if you have subclasses, you can treat them yeah. differently within the class. But when you count the votes, it's the whole class that counts. Another example is the uh, minor creditors, the creditors that detain a very small amount. True. They can they can be treated uh, differently in terms of uh, percentage of the haircut. And usually the haircuts applied to the smaller creditors are very, very uh, lower uh, than the other creditors uh, to um, incentivize that these creditors vote favorably to the plan. And the plan then is approved by, uh, by headcount when it's needed to be in the classes that it's needed to be approved by headcount. Sure. Mm. Sounds similar to U.S. law that allows uh, for convenience uh, creditor claims. Talking about courts of restructuring, are there specialized uh, uh, bankruptcy courts, or is it just into a, a, a restructuring filing is thrown into a civil system? Uh, do you have judges who are routinely assigned these proceedings who have an expertise? No. Well, in, in Brazil, unfortunately, unfortunately, no. Uh, the, the, the state uh, courts are competent uh, to handle court uh, restructurings and, and, and bankruptcy. Uh, in some circuit, uh, circuit courts, uh, there are, uh, such as in Rio de Janeiro and in Sao Paulo, there are uh, uh, state uh, courts, both in, in, in first and second levels of jurisdiction, uh, that, uh, that are specialized. Uh, what we see is that due to the uh, uh, particularities and, and specific specificities of 11.101, there is a trend uh, towards the specialization uh, and regionalization uh, uh, of the course that is to create uh, specialized courts which would attract the competence of courts of other secret courts uh, and especially in the countryside. So uh, the answer is, is, is no, but there is this trend uh, towards uh, specialization and regionalization. But there's no federal system. I mean, this is, this is really state. State courts, which are uh, which are the competent ones to preside over uh, bankruptcy cases. How active are creditors' committees in these restructuring cases? Are they present, uh, or are they discouraged because of potential liability? As you told, I'm I'm, I'm in this market working uh, with restructuring in in for the last 16 years. Uh, I believe that I saw just only one case that that that, that, that a creditors' committee was set. And why is that? First, because it's not, uh, uh, there's no compensation for that. Uh, the law admits only the reimbursement of expenses, but not any compensation. And secondly, I believe because of uh, the, the, the concern about lender's liability. So um, this uh, turned this, uh, this uh, provision of the law uh, practically <laughs> inexistent. True. So once a, a case is commenced as a judicial restructuring, take me through the timeline. It seems like Brazil has a very tight timeline in terms of having to file a plan of reorganization. It's true, uh, John. I just, I just hope that, I mean, in practice, uh, things would just follow exactly what's written in the, in the law. Uh, ba basically, I mean, the, the whole procedure, I mean, the, the, after the, the case is admitted, uh, uh, the debtor has 60 days uh, in which to file a, a plan, and a, a vote has to be called on that plan within within 150 days, counted as of the, the decision that admitted the proceeding. 
and the stay with, will last, and, and the law says it is non-extendable, for non-extendable 180 days. So, I mean, if you look at, at the law, in 180 days, in 150 days, you would have a vote on your plan, and in 180 days, you would you technically have it resolved, or otherwise, the automatic stay would fall, and all creditors would be would be free to uh, to to go after assets and and resume any foreclosures they might have on against the, the debtor. Uh, in reality, uh, that's not exactly what what happens in Brazil. I think. Uh, uh, in terms of, of the 180-day stays, I think it is, uh, at least in, in large cases, whenever it is really necessary to, to extend that stay, it is usually extended by the courts, uh, unless there's really a reason or something that can be uh, attributable directly to the, to the debtor in terms of not doing what it's required to do in order to get the vote. Uh, the 60-day period for the submission of the initial plan, I mean, the initial plan is usually a shell plan. I mean, it's really uh, normally very uh, favorable to the debtor. And negotiations really, I mean, start and, and may go on until the date of the, the creditor's meeting. And in, in the creditor's meeting, sometimes what happens is uh, the, the, the debtor, if, if there's no consensus on, on, on the plan, usually that, what, that happened in a lot of different, uh, uh, different RJs here in Brazil. At some point, the, the, the debtor just proposes that the, the meeting be adjourned, and then, I mean, discussions continue. So, and, and, and when that happens, usually the stay is extended. So, I mean... When does that creditor's meeting occur? We, the law says with, within 150 days, counted as of the day. It has to be called. It has to be called by, by, the, by, the, judicial, by, by the company and the judicial administrator, uh, the trustee, uh, in that case. So, is it true if... Uh... Once the plan is confirmed, if you will, the restructuring plan is confirmed, if the company defaults after uh, approval, let's say within the two-year period, are creditors then returned to their original rights uh, in, in the event of a default? Yes, yes. That's exactly what, what the two years are for. If, if there's a default, then, then uh, they, they go back and it's, it's liquidation. And, and they retain their rights as uh, originally granted. But again, also layering on this, uh, the secure creditors are not part of this, this restructuring, so to speak, under the law. Some of the secure creditors are not. I mean, those holding the so-called fiduciary liens, but the others are. So, I mean, uh, a creditor holding a mortgage or, or, or a pledge of shares, uh, this, 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 this category of creditors are subject to the, to the proceedings. Got it. So what do you guys see in terms of reform uh, coming down the pike? And, uh, have the investors, uh, uh, banking creditors, uh, been clamoring for reform? John, uh, I think that um, uh, I think that uh, the um, it's it, this reform uh, of of uh, is in the agenda of the, of the Congress um, for many years, but especially for the last two or three years is a major microeconomic matter. The pandemic uh, incredibly affected uh, Brazil, wiped out 700,000 businesses uh, only in the first sem semester of, of, of this year. Uh, so the pandemic uh, made the Congress uh, incorporate provisions uh, in, in the reform bill, uh, uh, response uh, 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 provisions for, for the COVID uh, in the reform bill, and created the momentum to push a most comprehensive reform uh, forward. 
Um, it already uh, passed uh, the House of Representatives uh, and, and is presently uh, under consideration of the Senate. Uh, it, is, it, it is, we recently uh, uh, knew that uh, it is expected to be voted no later than the end of November. Can you give us some examples of, of the reforms? Are they pro-debtor, pro-creditor, pro-landlord? I would say that they are um, pro-creditor pro uh, 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 in a way. Because um, if you uh, if you see the treatment that is given to dip uh, uh, financing, for instance, the the priority of dip of dip, of, of dip financing uh, uh, would boost to the second higher priority uh, in in the uh, law waterfall. In addition, the dip has gained some some additional protections, such as the case of maintenance uh, of its uh, its priority. Uh, if there is a modification uh, 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 of, of the court decision uh, approving the dip, uh, uh, so it maintains uh, its uh, a priority, and, and, and of course the guarantees uh, granted to the dip. Uh, in case of conversion uh, of the court restructuring to bankruptcy, um, also the guarantees and, and the privileges uh, uh, granted to the dip uh, are preserved. So I think that the uh, deep financing was uh, was pretty much improved by uh, by this uh, reform uh, bill. One one other uh, interesting issue is that um, uh, free and clear uh, uh, sale uh, of uh, uh, assets uh, uh, it's not now uh, it's, it's not now only limited to the the so-called isolated productive unit but uh, uh, in, uh, for sale of, 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 of vessels, of, of, of assets, goods, rights of any nature, uh, jointly or individually, uh, including equity participations. So, uh, uh, so I think this is also a, a very uh, important change, especially uh, in, in, in terms of on-court uh, restructuring that, uh, according to the current law, the, the application of the free and clear sale is, is, is very restricted. Um, so I think that uh, there was interesting, uh, uh, also I would, I, would, I would say that substantive, um, substance, substantive consolidation was codified. So at least the insecurity uh, brought, uh, one, one can claim that uh, uh, the, the criteria that the law adopted was not the best one, uh, but the, the approach towards uh, uh, um, substantive, substantive consolidation was very negative, uh, like it would apply in, in situations that were, you know, uh, confusion uh, uh, of assets and, and, and debts uh, between the, uh, the, the companies, uh, which uh, generally in Brazil uh, uh, is something related to fraud. Uh, but, uh, but at least there is a criteria now, uh, and, and, and this, I believe, ends the and the uh, uh, insecurity, if you will, of uh, you know of uh, uh, not having uh, court decisions, uh, uh, you know, uniformly applied. Uniformly applied. So, so are these reforms have they been implemented already, or they're still pending approval by the Congress? They're still pending approval by the Senate. There, there's a sort of a, a two-house uh, approval process. Uh, that, that, so it was approved at the House of Representatives, and it's now. Uh, under Senate consideration. And I mean, from what we hear is uh, it, it pretty much looks like a package 
Uh, and I mean, if at least for at the time being, not, not major uh, changes are expected to what has already been approved uh, at the House of Representatives. So we might have uh, we might have a pretty much and and, and I mean, as as Antonio was mentioning, I mean the. The changes are, are really major. It's, it's almost like a new law is being passed at this point. Even though I think I would say, I mean, under the same principle, it's really, I think it's interesting that in this 15-year anniversary, uh, uh, I think a lot of the issues that have been raised over over the years about the law are now being tackled by by the reform. That, that sounds like good news. And in terms of attracting investors and keeping the cost of credit down in Brazil. I think so, uh, John. If I if I may, I think I, I would add to to the list of points. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a massive change, but I think another interesting uh, interesting thing is that I mean, the the exclusivity that was granted to the debtor to to uh, to submit a, a restructuring plan uh, now has shifted. Now, I mean, there's a, there's sort of an exclusivity period for the for the the debtor to do that. But if if debtor submits a plan and it does not have uh, the support of the of the creditors, instead of going to which, as Antonio said before, uh, is not a, a really a, an attractive option in most cases for for the creditors. Uh, then uh, the, the the right to to propose a, to submit a plan shifts to to the to the debtor. So that's a, that's an interesting change. Uh, I think as a whole, the whole process is being streamlined. Uh, so there are restrictions regarding the extension of the stay. Uh, there's a, a sort of a the, the, that court supervision period of two years. Is, it, it was mandatory. Now it's not mandatory anymore, so the judges may decide not to, uh, not to, to grant it. So there, there are a lot of different uh, streamlinings in the in the process that I think will be welcome. Uh, also, I think the other thing that I would mention is just, I mean, the tax impacts, as as we mentioned, tax claims are not subject to uh, insolvency restructuring, uh, to the RJ as we call it. Uh, so the problem is sometimes when you when you did sort of uh, haircuts. I mean that had a lot of uh, a huge impact, a huge tax impact in the in the company, uh, in the debtor, and and uh, and and that's being uh, sort of addressed at least uh, in the law. Uh, there's uh, there are also some specific in, new installment plans for payment of taxes for those companies who apply for the insolvency process. So even though it's not restructurable under the the RJ proceeding, uh, there's some kind of uh, of specific law. Uh, I mean, if the reform passes, uh, that will be addressing that, uh, the, the tax claims as well. Uh, well, it certainly sounds like a lot of these reforms are gravitating towards uh, provisions that are in the U.S. Uh, bankruptcy code, uh, which, uh, you know, gives more certainty to investors in terms of uh, uh, rights of creditors, especially those coming in extending dip loans and uh, affording creditors uh, some more leverage and being able to propose their own plan of organization if the debtor's plan fails. Absolutely. But last, last but not least, I would like to point out that there is a, a, a entire chapter uh, in the reform bill dedicated to, to uh, transnational insolvency based mm-hmm. in the Uncitral model law uh, for, for cross-border insolvency. So, this was very important uh, a point. It was something that was missing in our law, and that uh, this reform uh, uh, covers. So this will help a lot to attract investments and, and also help in the you know international trade and, and so forth. So essentially, Brazilian courts will now recognize foreign uh, bankruptcy proceedings uh, that take place outside of Brazil. That's correct. As your chapter fifteen, yeah. 
Yes, yes. Well, this has certainly been very enlightening. Uh, Joe, do you have any final questions or thoughts? Last question. Marcos, we have talked in the past about, um, you know, how under the current law it's unclear whether, um, you know, bondholders each have the ability to vote, you know, their bonds in connection with the restructuring or where, you know, a, a bond issuance is governed by, you know, an indenture with a trustee. There's only one vote in favor of the trustee. Can you clarify you know, how, how, how voting works, um, you know, for bond claims and if the, the proposed reforms uh, address the, the issues in the current law. Sure, sure. Uh, I, I think, I mean, this was, was, a, was a matter that was, I think, uh, resolved by, by case law, and I think pretty well. Uh, basically, I mean, the, the, what the OGX case uh, decided, and before the OGX case, the Hage case also decided, but I think OGX really set the parameters because it was a, such a high-profile case. Was that I mean uh, uh, the 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 bondholders have the right to segregate, to separate their, their claims, and to vote uh, individually, or to appoint and/or depending on the on the provisions of the indenture of the bond, uh, for those uh, who those uh, bondholders who do not wish to individualize their claims, the trustee subject to the provisions of the, of the indenture may also vote. Uh, on their on their behalf, that usually it's not. I mean, it's usually difficult for a trustee to vote here in Brazil. I think there's a lot of liability concerns unless there's really a, a clear instruction on on how to vote. But uh, it might be. I mean, you might it might involve a bit of paperwork, but it's it's doable. It's definitely doable. And courts, especially in São Paulo and Rio, uh, already used to that precedent. Well, Marcos and Antonio, it sounds like uh, similar to here in the U.S. Um, uh, restructuring lawyers are going to be very busy uh, for the ensuing years in the aftermath of this pandemic. Uh, we want to thank you both for your time and effort in explaining to us the current situation in Brazil and uh, how the restructuring laws work. Uh, we certainly will be in touch with you and uh, keeping uh, tabs on what's going on in Brazil and certainly uh, this pandemic uh, crisis has taught us that uh, no one is alone and we all are relying on each other uh, to pull out of this. Uh, but thank you very much for your time and effort. Thank you. It was our pleasure. Thank you. Until uh, our next podcast to our listeners, thank you for listening in. We hope that you uh, found this to be helpful and um, uh, signing off until next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to O'Melveny's The Cram Down Podcast. This podcast is a summary for general information and discussion only and may be considered an advertisement for certain purposes. It is not a full analysis of the matters presented, may not be relied upon as legal advice, and does not create an attorney-client relationship between the firm and the listener. Portions of this communication may contain attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Views expressed by guests are their own. Please direct all inquiries regarding New York's rules of professional conduct to O'Melveny & Myers, LLP, Times Square Tower, 7 Times Square, New York, New York, 10036, telephone 212-326-2000.